Hi, everyone. This is Work Appropriate, and I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. Let's go back to 2011. I am finishing up my PhD, which entailed doing a whole lot of writing for free. At that point, I'd been blogging on a WordPress blog for several years, also, of course, for free. And I start reading this website called The Hairpin, which, at least in the beginning, was held together by the work of one brilliant woman named Edith Zimmerman. I loved everything I read on the site and decided one night, totally on a whim, to submit something. Edith says, yes, I lose my shit. It's the best day of my professional life. And even though this site had ads from like car companies and stuff, I did not even think to ask about money. All that mattered to me at that point was that I would be published on a website that I adored. Every few weeks, I'd write a new addition to the series, which was now called Scandals of Classic Hollywood. And a lot of the stuff that I was writing about, I knew already. I could just write it from the top of my head. But some of it required detailed research. And I was churning out five, six, seven thousand word features. And my payment, at least the way that I think I conceived of it then, was personal glory. At some point, my brother convinces me to just even ask for $100 a piece. Edith says, yes, I once again lose my mind because I was getting paid to write. Now, remember, I was coming from a place that was very much outside of the system. I had no idea that I was, in some ways, kind of scabbing, or at least enabling a system in which writer's labor is deeply depreciated. Now, I don't blame Edith or anyone that was part of this this website network for that model. In the wake of the financial crisis, the entire industry of getting paid to write, particularly but not exclusively online, It was in shambles. The old rules and norms did not apply anymore. People had been laid off or left the industry entirely. And in their wake, a whole lot of people with other jobs, like in my case, academia, started writing for those basement rates. Every decade or so, the entire writing for money paradigm shifts yet again. Sometimes it's the result of larger economic shifts, like the bursting of the dot-com bubble or the Great Recession. And sometimes it's much more specific to the industry, like the infusion of venture capital money in the mid-2010s, or the quote-unquote pivot to video in the late 2010s. To write for money is to get very comfortable with constantly changing your expectations, your strategy, even your skill set. It's a lot, particularly when all you really probably want to do is write. So to talk about how to navigate this ever-changing and increasingly unsustainable business and to answer your quandaries about it, I wanted a co-host who's been through it, like really been through it. And she doesn't have a roadmap to share or even necessarily heartening advice, but she does have a really, really good compass. I'm Jennifer Romolini, and I'm a writer, I'm an editor, and I'm the host of the new Crooked Podcast, Stift. So you've been a writer and editor and in a bunch of different ways for a long time. So yeah. like when someone's like, okay, what's the, what's the story? How did you get here? What do you say? I mean, my career makes no sense. And this is why. <laughs> same, <laughs> like, just, same. <laughs> my career makes no sense. Um, you know, I'm a kid of teenage working class parents out of Philly, um, got married really young in a terrible first marriage, dropped out of college, failed out of college, stoned out of college, like just a mess. My 20s were just like, who even knows what the hell they were? And I had wanted to be a writer. Like if I if I had anything that I really wanted to be, I had wanted to be a writer. I had read Sassy Magazine when I was in my, in my teens and I wanted to be a, a sassy writer. Like that seemed like, oh my God, live in New York, be a magazine editor or a writer, whoa. Um, and so in my late 20s, that became my goal. And I, I put myself through school and I got to New York and I was like a 28, 29 year old assistant in New York making $30,000 a year, making less than I had made as a waitress. And I got laid off my first three jobs because, you know, 
that's what happens, right? I finally got a job after like 30 interviews and I got laid off six months later. And then I got another job. I got laid off. And then I was at Tina Brown's Talk Magazine. Wow, I made it. Got laid off again. You were there? Yes, I was. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was like the pinnacle of what I felt like a cool magazine was because they advertised before the Miramax movies. Like, oh, yes, right? Know? But yeah, I worked at Talk Magazine, which was a wild place to work and total chaos and total dysfunction and total toxic. Like, you start to smell, oh, wait, this dream is not going to be what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, you know, bounced around a lot, couldn't make ends meet, you know, living off credit cards, the whole thing, had slept on a futon on the floor in a shared roommate apartment into my 30s, got my favorite job of my whole life at Time Out New York, couldn't get them beyond $35,000 a year. And I had to leave after two years because I just couldn't survive. But I mean, if I think about what I love to do, I love coming up with ideas. I love chasing them down. I love describing things imaginatively. I love uncovering information. And I like putting sentences together in a way that is interesting and flows. And I have taken those core skills and used them in a number of different ways in a number of different places. So, you know, that was my dream job, but it didn't pay. Yeah. What, do, what do you do? Like at every point in your life, you're kind of deciding between the creative mode and money mode. Like you, because you, you usually don't get both. Well, and I'm glad that we have you here today because I think there's some glamorization of like, oh, before the internet and before internet publishing, it was possible to make a good living as a writer. And yes, it was for a rarefied few, right? But a lot and of mostly people men had, and mostly white men. Yes. And most people had. Jobs like yours at Time Out New York that had a, a ceiling that was barely cost of living. Still, right? These were the options back then, right? My husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was working at GQ, making a shit ton of money, just like as a staff writer. Just could write whatever the hell he wanted, right? Yep. Those jobs were not really available to women. There were like, there were five of them. And if you weren't one of the five women, if you didn't have the yep. right pedigree, which I didn't, For women, you had a choice. You could be writing for magazines and you could be talking about baby bumps and hair and J-Lo's new perfume. Or you could be writing about like, because I fact check these stories, you could be writing about queefing. Sorry, that's disgusting. But that was the thing I had to fact check. It was very horrible. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and how to please a man. And I didn't want any of that. And I eventually went into it. I went to a Condé Nast women's magazine, um, lucky with the boss that I love and still work with to today, but like didn't want to do any of the shit that I was writing. It made me yeah. a better writer, but I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I, my friend Virginia Soul Smith, who writes a newsletter now that's like an anti-diet newsletter, her dream was like, I'm going to work for teen magazines. And then she got these jobs and then she was writing all of this fat phobic shit. Oh God. Oh, everything was fat phobic. Everything was fat. It was horrible. It was horrible. Right? I mean, it was horrible. Like I was, I was, I remember I was called portly. Like I'm a size eight. I was called portly in a women's magazine because like oh everybody God. was trying to be a size two. Now I do think it's worse now. <laughs> like, yes. To be clear. To be clear, it's worse now, but it wasn't that great before. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of went through the gauntlet of digital media as well and found yourself on the other side with podcasting. And also you write books and like you do a lot of other stuff too. Yeah. And, and we should, I hope we talk about that. But I'm really interested in how a lot of the writers whose work I have admired for so long who have found themselves frustrated, fatigued, burned out by the, the writing economy have found themselves in podcasting. Can we talk a little bit about your road there? Well, I mean, like, it's funny because it's like, oh, well, here's where the pot of gold is. It's, there's no pot of gold there either. <laughs> no, like, let's, no, like, okay, no, no, no. like, let's just be really frank. This, like, this yeah. is just like, I'm just a cobbler, right? I have these core skills I just talked about, and I just, like, put them into different buckets as much as I can. Um, 
I had been running a weed site out of Ireland. Okay, Like there's an Irish cannabis site and it was based in Ireland. And I had this sweet job that paid me enough and that, that I could like live. And I went to Ireland every two months and I like, you know, taught people how to write SEO stories. Like can marijuana cure herpes? Answer no. You know, like all these things. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. everybody told me not to take that job. Like your career will be over. Like that's why there are no rules. Like I was like, that job sounds fun and like low key and I've been through some shit and I deserve like a nice weed job in Ireland. Um, but I got laid off from that because it went under and <laughs> as everybody, as everything good does. And um, my friend Jane Marie, who um, owns the Little Everywhere studio was like, I need somebody to come in and just help me around the office. Like literally like water the plants, clean the bathroom, but also vet pitches and... Um, help me make pitches, just like help, you know, a, a lot of admin. Yep. And I was 46 years old and it was basically an internship. I mean, she paid me, she paid me for two days a week. And while I was there, I was like, well, maybe I could do this. I wonder if I could do this. This seems like an interesting way to write. And I, I'm curious to see if I could take my skills and put them in this bucket now, right? So I got laid off from there too, because again, my whole life is getting laid off, right? And because it was the pandemic and I got laid off. And yeah. after I got laid off, I was like, I think I have this story idea that I've been thinking about for a really long time. And I think maybe this is the best way to tell this story is an audio. So I got a Canva Pro account and I came up with a deck and I... I tapped uh, producer Megan Donis, who I'd been working with at Little Everywhere. And I was like, hey, do you want to like make the trailer for this? Do you want to go in this project with me? So yeah, so that was how I did it. And I really think a lot when I'm stuck because I was really feeling lost after the weed. I mean, the weed job was like a weird detour. And I was really feeling quite lost, like what's going to happen next. And whenever that happens to me, I think, what do I still want to do? Like, mm -hmm. what will I feel sad if I'm like almost dead and I haven't done? I try a bunch of things to see what sticks and most of it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Stift then. And like how, why did you want to do this project for so long? And how did it take form as a podcast? So I found Viva Magazine, which is what Stift is about. I found Viva Magazine while I was working at Lucky Magazine, while I was working in women's magazines, in Condé Nast, in the sort of belly of that aughts publishing beast. And I wrote a column um, about eBay shopping, and I found it while I was searching on eBay. And I saw this magazine, and it was so interesting because... It looked like a magazine. It was already at that point 30 years old. It looked like a mm -hmm. magazine that I wanted to work at, but it didn't exist huh. in the present day. Yeah. I mean, the first issue I saw, there were like articles about bisexuality. There were articles about, you know, your sexual fantasies. There were articles about like all kinds of really independent, progressive minded things about desire and sex and work. And then also like an amazing like six page spread of like sheer chiffon dresses with like nipples out. I was like, what the fuck is this? Right. And then when I found out it was owned and published by Bob Guccione, who we all think about as like this horrible, like sleazy, not maybe not horrible, but definitely sleazy pornographer, like macho, like the picture of 70s masculinity, you know, then I was like, OK, what's the tension here? So I started collecting the magazines and eventually over, you know, 15, 20 years, I collected nearly a full set and I've just been hauling them around. And what I saw was Patricia Bosworth died. Um, she was one of the editors oh, of yeah. Viva and she died at the beginning really? of the pandemic. Yeah, she was one of the editors of Viva. She was like a big editor of Viva and she was like this amazing journalist and she had also been an actress and her career was really interesting. She eventually became like a celebrity biographer, like... Yeah, she wrote a biography of Montgomery Clift that yeah, like, I read back and forth like three times. Yeah, yeah. She, she was incredible, so far ahead of her time. And she died at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then I was like, oh, shit, there's a race for this. These, yeah. these, pe these people's voices are not going to be here for much longer. And another interest of mine is older women. 
And I really wanted to resurrect these women's work. I really wanted to like excavate it. I wanted to, I wanted to highlight it. I wanted to showcase them because I loved it. I felt like such a pure love for what they had done and what they had created. And at a really interesting moment, I think in the magazine industry, in feminism, like it's kind of at this like pivot point almost, right? Like the fact that yeah. this magazine could get made was, um, is meaningful. The fact that it died also meaningful. You know what I mean? Well, the story of Viva really follows the story of the 70s, right? There's all this progression. There's the sexual revolution. There's the women's liberation movement in like 1973. All of that shit's hitting, you know, Rose passed, you know, all of this stuff. They feel like they've won, right? And by the end of the 70s, Viva stops publication in early 79, We're looking, Reagan times are being ushered in, Mm -hmm. AIDS is coming, moral majorities like just fucking beaten at the door. And feminists are at war with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a big split in the movement, which really weakens the movement. So what we were able to do with Stift, which I'm really excited about, was we were able to not only tell the story of this magazine and magazine, like all the like inside baseball of magazines, which was such a pleasure for me but also track the story of the sexual revolution, how it wasn't very revolutionary for women at all. Talk about porno chic and deep throat and what that meant, how that was actually a mockery of women's sexuality, you know, Mm -hmm. how white men like stole all that progress back again. And we really were able to make a lot of parallels to today, which I think are really important. Like our cycles of progression are really important. Mm -hmm. So looking at like what happened, the story of the magazine, do you see connections, too, to, like, uh, the hellscape of writing today, right? Like, the quandary of how how to make this magazine, how to make a living working for this magazine, and the fate of the magazine with, like, how hard it is now as well to, like, make anything that isn't considered mainstream marketable in some way into a product that that is available and that pays a living wage. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because, you know, some of the right, I talked to editors who were on staff who had more secure, you know, salaries. And then I talked to some of the the regular freelance writers. And, you know, one of them said to me, you know, we didn't get paid anything. We made like $500 an article. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) In 1970s dollars. 50 years ago, we made nothing. $500 an article. The first time I got paid to write for the internet, it was $100. And I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me in like $2,012, you know? I've made $50 on an essay. You know, like I've made $50 on an essay that I spent a month writing. But I was like, this has to get published in this place because if I self-publish it, it's like it has less value. Like it has to happen. It's gross. But, you know, we always think we're living in the aftermath of boom times and there's very, there are so many things we can't control as creative people. And most of it is luck. And it's always been luck. It's just, yeah. that's just the way it is. And so I think if your desire and your deepest desire in your life is to be a creative person, then you need to get comfortable with precarity. And I know mm-hmm. that's like a sucky thing to say, but I really think it's the truth. Or you take your skills, your core skills, and you bring them to a place that's more secure. And that might bring some satisfaction too. Like you have to decide what kind of person you are and what period of your life you're in. This is very good pre-advice for everything that we're going to talk about today. So here's our first question. And it really lays the foundation for some of the similarly philosophical issues at play here. This is from Claudia and our colleague Julia is going to read it. Coming from the book publishing industry, could you help me navigate the entry-level pay gap? More generally, it seems to reflect a generational disconnect, where older generations in senior positions are exploiting workers of younger generations and seem to be waging a financial war against the young. Shouldn't generations support one another? How might young people regain trust in their parent generations? So this to me gets at an issue that was at the heart of the HarperCollins strike, which yeah. is that you have all these entry-level workers who are getting these salaries in the 30000 range, which, you know, now <laughs> you were talking about it in like the 2000s and like we're, you know, 20 yeah. years in the future and New York is even more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the people who have been in the industry for a long time are like, this is how I navigated the system. 
this is how I did it. So you should do it again. And I think this is at the heart of a lot of tension within organizations. So what's your take here? My take is, no, you're never going to trust the other people. Like the, the the reason they were able to make it, most of them, and they won't say it, is because they had parents supplementing their incomes because yep. they have generational wealth. And for people who don't have that, you're fucked. You're just always fucked. These are white, privileged, just the whitest, most privileged <laughs> industries with, you know, parents who it's like not a big deal to send your kid to an Ivy League school. Like the way you afford to have these jobs is you're not carrying around the weight of college debt. And the answer to the question is, yes, of course, we should be paying people a living wage. We should pay people enough to live in the city where they work. Like it's obscene that we don't. But this story has been going on for so long. I don't know if it changes. I mean, I wish I don't know how we disrupt the system. So my editor for the first three of my books, her name's Kate Napolitano. Wait, wait, wait. That's my editor. (laughs) This is how we got – part of the reason we got connected. But then you know Kate's story. Oh, I – that? Oh, tell me. Is that she, like, when she scrambled to get her first, like, assistantship job at one of the publishing houses, she lived with her parents at home in Jersey And took the train in, you know, an hour, an hour plus, like a long slog into the city because that was the only way that she could survive on the salary that she was paid was to live at home. And even that was a privilege. And she grew up working class. And one of her huge goals is to make it possible for people like her and especially people who aren't, you know, white as well like her to break into the system. And so, like, her assistants are always people like like she has never had an assistant that looks like what you think a stereotypical assistant in the publishing industry is, right? Anyone that she hires, like, and I think if you can look for the people who are, you know, who their previous assistants are, who they surround themselves with, yeah. like those are the beacons yeah, in some way. And if you can find those people, like that's how you can trust an older generation. Yeah. But that is the only way, I think. And people my age... Should be. I mean, they're the people who can change it. I'm no longer in a position of power to change this this kind of a situation because I got burnt out of fighting all those battles all the time. And it takes so much out of you. But if you are in a position to hire people, give them more money. But also teach people to ask for money, more money, demand more money. I mean, the problem is, is that there's always going to be people who can afford to have these jobs and who will take them and they will take them and be underpaid because they have that kind of parental support, family support. Yeah. And that's where the system is is so broken. I mean, yeah, the trust in the, the other generation, I don't think you should. I mean, I'm very Gen X when I say this, but I don't think you should. Like, don't, yeah. like, I mean, form a union so that you don't need trust yes. so that you can actually like formalize the, the terms of the agreement because I don't think that trust is something that you can rely on here. No, no. Work Appropriate is brought to you by ZocDoc. Let's say you have been stewing about a health problem you have. Maybe you're sick yet again because you've been sick all winter, like every other adult that I know. And even though it's April, you're still sick. You almost resort to texting your group chat to get your friends' opinions, but they would just be like, oh, you're probably just sick like all the rest of us. You're extremely unlikely to find quality medical advice in your group chat, but you can find it from a doctor on ZocDoc. Thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc are there to help you. They listen like a friend and give you the expert care you need. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. No more Dr. Roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews that tell you nothing. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you haven't even met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com work and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash work. ZocDoc dot com slash work. Support for today's episode comes from Honey Love. 
The reviews are in. Honey Love came out on top for best wedding day shapewear. With wedding season upon us, this is the ad you have been waiting for. Whether you're a bride, a guest, or looking for an everyday fit, Honey Love is your go-to for all things shapewear. Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. We have an exclusive offer for my listeners. Get 20% off your entire order with the code WORK at HoneyLove.com. Support our show and check them out at HoneyLove.com and use the code WORK. When talking about shapewear, Honey Love's best-selling superpower short is the go-to. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas you need less compression. Their signature X targets and sculpts your midsection without squeezing your natural curves. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. The Superpower Short is helping ladies everywhere sculpt and smooth from stomach to thigh by offering just the perfect amount of compression. You don't have to worry about it rolling down, which is unheard of in shapewear, thanks to flexible boning that's hidden in the side seams. They also have body suits with 360 bonded compression that smooths your tummy and hips, built-in bust support, lifts without underwire. It's shapewear that's comfortable. But it doesn't stop there. Honey Love has more than just sculpt wear. They have incredibly comfortable bras. I have one. It's amazing. Tanks and leggings for everyday support. Honey Love is just as easy to put on as it is to take off. Shapewear shouldn't be hard. Their products make you look good and feel good. Whether it's for a wedding, event, or an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com with the code WORK. Use work at honeylove.com. Our next question is from someone who has been good at her job in the past, but is worried she can't keep at it like she used to. This is from Matilda, and our producer Melody is going to read it. I'm a journalist and a new parent. I feel like the second I had a kid, I lost my ability to compete with younger coworkers who can take on any assignment or deadline at the drop of a hat. How do I deal with this shift? Do I just be worse at my job for a few years? So we talked about this a little bit in one of our early episodes of the show about how hostile work is to parents. That was with Jessica Gross about how you can tell who has kids based on like how demanding they are that you drop everything and, and do something at the last minute. But Jennifer, you have a kid. How do you think about this in terms of um, being good at journalism and that dependency on being so available and responsive? Well, I think we get locked into an idea like that, oh my God, this is always going to be this way. Or what am I just mm. not going to be good at my job anymore? Or, you know, whatever. So the answer is, the first answer to your question is yes. Like that's what you do. You be a little less good at your job. You try to find the sweet spot with work that you're trying to find with parenting, which is you're trying to find the spot between neurotic and neglect. And you just are like, where is the center? And that's where it has to be. Because <laughs> the thing is, careers are long childhoods are actually short, right? And this is how it is for me. I've made a lot of sacrifices, but they don't really feel like sacrifices. I've made a lot of decisions so that I could be a more present parent. And my child has needed me in different ways. They're 13 now. They've needed me at, at different stages differently, right? So there have been times where Early stages when, you know, you're breastfeeding or whatever, it's like, oh, the, again, I'm going to say it again, you're fucked. Like, just like, it's okay to take a step back a little bit as long as your job is, as long as your job is paying you. Let's say that, right? As long as you're yeah. not in danger of losing a job that you need to put food on the table, roof over your head. Taking a step back is okay because the parenting is going to ebb and flow. In a couple of years, that kid's going to be in elementary school and they're going to need you a lot less. In a couple of years after that, they're going to need you more when they're in middle school and you might need to readjust. We need to think about our careers as something that is that is fluid, that's not fixed, that this should be about what you need as much as what your employer needs, as much as you can wrangle that. You know, I'm always wary yeah. to give that kind of advice because it's not always realistic, but as much as you can wrangle some boundaries, because a lot of times it's about 
the good enough performance is good enough, but it's about your own ego. So making sure that you're checking like, oh, well, I don't need to be the star for the next six months. As long as yep. I'm doing the work, my boss is satisfied with the work. Don't go into overdrive with work if you don't have to. It's totally fine to just be like, this is chill right now. I can just imagine how that feels of like that contrast with here's the sort of journalist I used to be and here's what I am now. And like, is this ever going to end? Kind of like, is my child ever going to grow past 11 months? Like I am here forever. And it's not the case. It's not the case. And and the worst thing you can do is catastrophize, right? Like the worst thing to, is to catastrophize. You don't know how you're going to feel in six months. You might, you know, or yeah. in a year, like, but equally around, around the time when my, my kid was, eight or nine, I was really just full steam in my career, like just crazy. I was just like, okay, this is, this is the moment. I was in like the, the hot center of like the, my, my biggest success. And my kid was struggling hmm. and I really had to make a decision because I could not do both. And I really had to make a decision about my child's mental health versus my own success. And I chose my child's mental health because also... <laughs> It was like, I'm missing this whole childhood. I, I, I'm missing things that I'm never going to get back again. And I don't think you regret that. As long as you keep your toe kind of dipped into your career. I mean, there's one thing to back all the way out and then that's its own set of issues. But as yep. long as you're keeping your toe dipped in, I don't think you regret the time you devote to your child. One progression I see a lot in journalism is actually like writing a ton, on the trail a ton, like doing all sorts of intense journalistic work have a kid and maybe move a little bit more into editing, you know, stuff that yeah. allows you to stay in one place. Yeah. And then kids out of the house or older needs you a little bit less. And yeah. then you get to go back. And it's almost like like going to college again, you know? Yeah, it's never, that's the thing. It's never, there's no rules and it is never over. It's yeah. never, never over. Like, that's a thing that we really think like, oh, if I get off this ride, they're not going to let me back on. They will. Do you have any like practical tips that you can remember from when your kid was a little younger about adjusting to this new normal? I really loved what you said about a lot of this is about your personal ego. You know, I think that one thing that's really important that we, especially in journalism, when we have deadlines and everything else, like we really treat things like they're an emergency. Everything's an emergency. It's all, yes. things are not yes. an emergency, like barely anything, unless somebody is like having like, a, unless you're a doctor and you're doing open heart surgery, like things are not an emergency. And I think that, we really want to show our work a lot, but we, and it's unnecessary. Like, oh, I answered the email first. I was the fastest to slack, you know? And I think I started moving back from that and really not answering emails after a certain time, really creating the boundaries that we need. And if you're doing, if you're good at your job, those small adjustments don't mean much to your employer. It doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but they mean a lot to your mental health. Your employer is not actually noticing that you are the first to slack. Yeah. Yeah. You personally are noticing and you are like, this is evidence that I'm still on it. That's right. Right. Or like, or like, you know, and I don't know how this is now, but like being the last one in the office, like I was, <laughs> I was a big last one in the office person, like, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just like some martyr shit. You don't need to do it. Like <laughs> You don't need to do it. And nobody cares. Yes. And really sort out what does matter. What matters about this job? What does my boss care about? And once you know that, you can make a lot of adjustments, actually. Yeah, having that sort of clear communication with your manager, yep. especially if your manager has ever had kids, like, I think that there is a real clarity that can be gained there. Like, all right, we're on the same page about what matters, and I can prioritize that. Yeah. And, and deprioritize all of this performative, I'm still on the job bullshit. That is the performative thing. But also really knowing your value, I think, is too. We, mm, we yes. really, we really like in this moment, we're like, well, if I'm not answering the email first, if I'm not that fast to stories, if I'm not filing six times a week, that might not be what your value is. And I bet you have mm -hmm. a lot more value than that, right? And... I'm always wary to give this kind of advice because you don't, you're not inside of it. And that's the problem with all career advice because careers are so personal and all of this is so case by case, right? There's no one size fits all. 
So like if it's a scary situation and you're feeling like, oh, I might lose my job and you need that job, that's that's a different situation. But there are times where you can kind of take a small step back. And I'm not talking about like quiet quitting. I'm not talking about some passive aggressive shit. I'm talking about like, I could dial this down a notch Mm -hmm. or two, free up some more space so I'm more calm at home. I'm more present for my childcare that I have to do. And I'm not having such an overlap between work and home. And that's really what you're looking for is to separate the two as much as you can. Yeah, I mean, most people I know are already operating at like 130%. Yes. And so dialing back doesn't mean this has always been my problem with like the quiet quitting discourse is that it just means that you're doing like 100% instead of 130%, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're not fighting battles that are not yours to fight. I feel like that mm-hmm. was a big thing that I got into when I was when I was really just like a, a yep. ambition monster, which is, by the way, my next book. Um, but, you know, looking at your own workaholic tendencies, too. You know, what is the, what is this about you and what hole is this yeah. work filling, too? Like, there's all of that stuff. Yes, 100%. Like, what is going on with myself? Like, why am I... I mean, motherhood, parenthood, caregiving, like it just brings up so many other questions about identity. So it's part of this larger question of like, how can I hustle again is also like, am I going to be the same person that I was before? And no, like you said, it is it is a continuum. It is an evolution. It's all of these things. And it can't be it's not going to only be one thing for the rest of your life. And also making sure you're not caring about what it looks like to the outside world. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because the outside world doesn't matter at all. This invisible audience that we've all created for ourselves and that social, that we had forever, but social media has made so much worse. Oh my God, I don't have, people aren't seeing my bylines go up on Twitter. Oh my God, oh my God. That's just nonsense. You just have to quiet that shit down. Work Appropriate is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. We are constantly growing and changing, and so are our relationships with our parents, our friends, our kids, you name it. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way that we do until we talk things through. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Just the other day, I was writing a piece about women and, like, organization and planning, that sort of thing, and how women use organization and preparedness to try and insulate themselves from gender-based inequities and discrimination. And the more I thought about the concept, the more I realized, oh, that has always been me, always been me with the planner, with the organization, with all of that. Even when I didn't have any idea of what or why I was doing it, some part of me understood this is how I compete. I put a puzzle piece together in my mind. And you know what therapy helps you do? Put puzzle pieces together. And you don't even have to research and write an article. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash work today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash work. Our last question is from Dave, who has seen the industry fail throughout his career. Our colleague Austin is going to read it for us. So I started working as a journalist right out of college at the beginning of the Great Recession. And since then, I've just seen the industry completely fall apart. Now, a lot of this has been because of certain financial and technological challenges, but some of it is due to the way that the industry has tried to address those challenges. Chasing clicks, eliminating beats, shortening everything, pivoting to video, obsessing over breaking news. Right now, I'm just really unsatisfied in my current job. And I really don't see myself being happy with any other positions in the industry. They no longer value the kind of things that I think I'm best at. So should I stick with work that I know I can do, but really don't enjoy doing? Do I give up and try another field? I don't even know how I would go about choosing one. This is really all I've ever wanted to do. Or is it just some way to cope and not be brought down by all the bleakness? 
All right. So as someone who has been through a lot of what Dave describes in terms of how the industry has changed personally, like I did have to get out. And I also knew that freelancing was not viable unless I had a very certain structure of freelancing, which is my newsletter. But like, I think like so much in any career, a specific path is not replicable. You know, like not everyone can go and write a newsletter, right? So what sort of advice do you give to people in this situation? I think it's a lot about flexibility, endurance, perseverance, blah, 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 blah. But actually, I think it's about flexibility because I read this and I thought, well, what is it actually that you like to do? 100%. What is it that you actually, is he saying he likes to do something? And I will go back to what I said at the beginning of this. My core skills, I can describe things imaginatively. I can, I like uncovering information. I like putting sentences together so it's interesting and flows. Okay. I love those three things and I'm good at all three. I've taken those three skills and I have done all kinds of things. I have ghostwritten billionaires newsletters. I have, I, you know, I have, I've done lots in writing, right? And I do not think you stay in a job that is miserable. And I think that you don't stay in a job that is miserable, not because of your career, but because of your life. I think that you yeah. leave a job that is miserable and you find something else that is less miserable. And that might not be the thing that gets your professional rocks off. Your professional rocks off might be writing, you know, having a, just a daily writing practice that's just for you, writing a crime novel. You know, it, there's a million things that you can do as, a, as an artist, as a creator, that have nothing to do with what the world sees and what pays you money. Yep. And I think disentangling those two when you see an industry collapsing is the only way to survive. And also just being like, I don't care. I'll do content for AT&T to pay my health insurance and to bring in the bills and I'll do something cool for myself. And yeah. that gets into side hustles, which I fucking hate. But sometimes as a creative person, you have to separate the money from the professional, from the satisfaction. Let's say that. We had Rainsford Stoffer on a couple episodes ago to talk about ambition. and I love her. And one of the things she says is like, you don't have to be ambitious about work. Like you can be ambitious about so many other things. Yeah. So if you can decouple your ambition from the thing that pays the bills, that can be revelatory. Like there are so many things that this person – there's so many skills that this person That's clearly right. has. If That's they've right. been in the, the industry for That's a really right. long time, they can take those skills, that skill set, and do so many things. And there are thousands of ex-journalists who have gone on and done those things. And exactly. it's very easy to look and see what they've done. But I think what we see at the heart of this question is kind of like a mourning. Yes. Right? The grief. Like, yes. There's a real grief. And like as someone who left a profession behind in academia, like I, I understand yep. that grief. It is yep. so real and it is authentic and there will be a mourning. But like – those other things that you love about journalism, is it the creation, right? Yeah. Maybe this person's really good at video editing. Like, I, I want to tell every person who loves video editing that they should get really into TikTok because it is yeah. so fun, yeah. right? Like, actually joyful. Yeah. Maybe they love reporting. Like, there are so many different ways you can do oral histories. Like, there's just a lot out there. And if you can separate the two things that, like, the thing that – gets your rocks off and the thing that you're good at, like that those have to somehow be adjoined and be the thing that also makes you money. That is a myth that we've been trying to dismantle. And focus on what you can control rather than what you can't. This person is very stuck mm. in all the ways this business is broken. I mean, the pivot to video, we've been bitching about this, all of us for, <laughs> you know, five, seven years. Like yes. we all watched what happened to this business. Like we all yep. watched them. Somebody just come in and just with a wrecking ball and destroy the things we liked, right? And we can't control that. We just can't. So start thinking expansively. What do you want out of your life? Is there a book you always wanted to write? Pitch the fucking book. Pitch yeah. the book and you're probably going to only get paid enough to not really live to write that book. And you're right. going to have take to take book yes. leave. Yes. yes. <laughs> you're going to have to have some dumb job on the side that brings you in money. But that we're always balancing those two things. And 
It has been very rare in the course of entire history of writing and journalism that people have been paid a livable wage to put down words. It's just, it, it, it's, it's been rare. And if we look at it that way, then we realize, oh, this is just the way it is. And I really want to keep doing this. So I'm going to find a way to take the skills I have and put them somewhere else. So I think that we have covered the emotional component of this question. Yeah. We have in previous episodes have talked about like, if you want to get out of your industry, how do you figure out what people have done? Like, and how LinkedIn is your absolute friend and also people who have left the industry, like just getting yeah. on the phone with them or emailing them and yeah. seeing what their what their path is. What advice do you have about like developing new skills, especially since like you just taught yourself to podcast? I mean, I took a class. I mean, I worked, I basically yeah. worked as a 46 year old intern, number one. Yep. And yep. I had other jobs. Like that was my other job. I had like many other jobs at the at the time, right? So I was just like taking whatever my like I was like writing gift guides. I was taking whatever I could get, right? I was hustling for work that was very junior to me, but that added up to a salary, right? While yep. I was learning, while I was sort of in the bridge between where I was to where I wanted to be. But I also took some classes online. I took narrative podcast classes online so I could I could learn because it's really scary when you don't know what you don't know. When you've gained mastery in one career mm-hmm. and you know all the rookie mistakes, there's like a, there's a confidence there, right? And when you yeah. enter something new, you're so vulnerable and it's so scary and you feel so much shame, especially if you're older. So set yourself up in a way, whether it's reaching out to people on LinkedIn and doing a bunch of information interviews whether it's like Googling what are rookie mistakes in this industry, just just treat it like treat it like you're in school, even if you're not in school, I think is what I would say. Um, and like I I looked at a million scripts. I looked at a million podcast scripts before I wrote my first podcast script because I really was scared. I just didn't have I know I'm a good writer, but I didn't know how to do it in something new. So I just got really curious about it and I think that's the best advice I can give, but also do not do a thing ever, which is it's over for me. I'm too old. This is what I know how to do Mm -hmm. or limit yourself and think I can't find satisfaction because this is the only thing I've ever loved. There are so many other things you just have not, you haven't uncovered yet. And think of it as a scavenger hunt. You're uncovering what you're going to want next. And each place you go is another going to give you another clue. Two things. One is that I am firmly in the camp that life has so many acts. There's so many different fun developments. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them not so fun, but like there's a lot more to come. And then the other thing is that as a journalist, we are very good at learning everything about something. That's right. That's so right. like apply those journalistic skills to learning about a new skill. And you know, when I when I'm looking at when I'm looking at what do I want to do next, it's always what I'm most jealous of. I think yes. that that is really the sniff test, right? Like the thing that is just irrationally I'm jealous about is the thing that I probably really want to do. I mean, this happened with me with books, it happened with podcasts, like it happened when I wanted to be an editor in chief. It's always the thing that I'm like I'm jealous, <laughs> you know? Yep. Like so like yep. uncovering that and getting right with yourself, what is it that you want to do? Also allowing yourself to think outside of the box on that in terms of like, I think a lot of journalists feel like, oh, what are you jealous of? It's like, oh, I want to write long form journalism for The New Yorker. Like, yeah, no, 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 like great. That's great. Like, but also not available, probably. So what are the other professional things that you're jealous of? And I often, like, there's this, um, Bloomberg does a collection of, like, stories that made them jealous every year. Yeah. I just love how imaginative it is because it's not just long-form journalism from The New Yorker. It's a whole expansive understanding of what journalism can look like. So. And, yeah, and it can't be something that's specific as, like, I want to write long-form for The New Yorker. It has to be yeah. more like, I want a job that will let me travel. I would like – it has to be, like – it has to be a little broader than that because the specific dreams, they limit you too much. This has to be an expansive exploration. I think, again, yes. like, I'm out of the advice business, but, like, this is this is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, out of the advice business, but I've given some of the best advice that we've had on this podcast. Uh, I love 
also that we managed to give advice that was at once practical and like philosophical, emotional, psychological. This is this is what we do here. Is there anything, I think lastly, that gives you a lot of hope when you look at the world of writing broadly defined? I mean, no. <laughs> it feels like every single it feels like every single aspect of it is broken from book yeah. publishing to digital publishing. What's print anymore? You know, mm-hmm. the New York Times is just, you know, transphobic. Television writers are going on strike. You know, it's uh-huh. just like it all uh-huh. it feels like every safe haven. But yet we exist because we want to do it. And that's the thing that gives me hope because I have yeah. amazing communities of writers because we may all be beaten down, but we're still making something happen somehow. And that's why there's there's no like sort of practical solution to this. It's more like, oh, yeah, it's fucked, but I we keep going. Well, and this is why I'm not scared of AI. I mean, I'm scared of AI for like so many reasons, but <laughs> I am not scared of their ability to like really absolutely replace all writers. Like we are too weird. We are too weird. There is just not a way to replace our sensibilities no. whole scale. Get in community with other writers. Go to mm. your friends' readings. Enjoy writing again. Like that's that was the thing that happened to me with this podcast. And I, I did it simultaneously by while writing a second book. And I just wrote seven days a week for about six months. And I was like, oh my God, I love writing. And I don't think I'll ever let writing go again. Mm-hmm. Even if nobody's going to read it. That's what makes it worth it, right? Is that like, it's actually something that nourishes you. It's yes. not something that like is impressive to other people, that is financially lucrative. Mm-mm. We all need to live and we have to find ways to do that on this earth. But we also all need ways to like figure out what we love and sustain us. Yeah, that's and right. you can do both. <laughs> you, you can. You can do both. You just have to have a, um, a good imagination. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, tell us where people can find you on the internet. And everyone also, please listen to Stift. It's coming out when? It's come. Oh, it's out. It's out in the world. Um, you can find me at Jen Romolini, J-E-N-N-R-O-M-O-L-I-N-I, across every place. I barely tried. I try to not be on Twitter, but mostly Instagram. Um, I also have a website, JenniferRomolini.com, that I built on top of a wedding website. It's real. It's real janky, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Work Appropriate. If you've got a workplace quandary you need help figuring out, get in touch. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter, Culture Study, at annhelen.substack.com. Also, you know what we need more of? Reviews. If you have an extra few moments, go give us one. It really helps others find the show. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producer is Kendra James. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Alison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. Next week, we're talking all about parental leave. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Hold up. 